Um, I want to begin this morning by sharing a quick story with you. And I, wanna, I want you to look at this phrase that's about to be thrown up on the screen. It's in Spanish. And I'm going to do my best to try to say this as, as, as it's supposed to be said, I guess. And then I'll give you the translation in English. But it says, Estamos bien en el refugio los 33. I think, I think that's how to say it properly. In English, it means we are well in the shelter, the 33. Some of you may know where I'm going with this. That seven-word message was written in red letters on a scrap of paper, and it was taped to a drill bit. And when it came up to those who received that message, it set off a wave of euphoria in Chile and around the world, and this is why. Um, there were a group of 33 miners who were operating in a mine about 2,300 feet underground when all of a sudden there was a cave-in and these 33 men were stuck in the mine. The Copayapo mining accident, as the world came to call it, became the most watched rescue mission in the history of the world. And for those who were involved in this rescue, they were, there was every reason to believe that these 33 men had died. Um, in fact, it was unlikely that they would survive, and even if they did, the expectation was that they would starve to death before they would ever be found. In the labyrinth of tunnels and ramps and rooms that spread out on the ground like arteries and veins, no one on the surface had any idea where these 33 men were. But the 33 men did survive that blast, and they took refuge in an area that um, was estimated to be about three miles from the actual entrance to that mine. 16 days after the initial cave-in, with nothing to eat or drink, optimism began to turn to desperation as these men began to realize that there is a very strong possibility that they may not survive. And so what they agreed amongst themselves they would do was that to survive or to keep themselves going as long as possible, the first person that died, they would eat. The first person that died, they would eat. And then came the 17th day. And as these men each sat left to his own thoughts, they began to hear this faint sound that grew louder and louder and louder as the seconds passed. And fearing another caving, they braced themselves for the worst. But then suddenly a six and a half inch exploratory drill punched through the roof into, into their pitch black sanctuary and it was from their rescuers. And with what little energy these men had, they began to bang on that dribbit in hopes that the rescuers above might hear it long enough to know that there were active people alive down below. When the rescuers pulled up that dribbit, they saw red paint on it, and of course they found that note that was attached to the bit, the words that I alluded to earlier, we are well in the shelter, the 33. So the rescuers then sent down a camera, and for the first time, the world peered into the dark eyes of a stunned survivor. Then, there they were, 33 haunted men trying to appear cheerful, to wave, to smile for their families, Many of them couldn't pull it off because they had lost as many as 50 pounds. But grateful to find these men, the rescuers knew that being located simply didn't mean that their ordeal was over. Now they had to figure out how to get these men out. And so with an estimated 1 billion people watching, either the whole or parts of this rescue that was playing live on television, rescuers began to extract these men until finally on October 13, 2010, 52 days after the miners were first discovered, and 69 days since the initial cave-in, all 33 miners were brought to the surface. They were emaciated, but they were alive. Pulling up this kind of rescue, as incredible as it was, could not have happened by one or two people 
being involved. It required a Herculean effort, a collaboration of individuals, uh, companies, every ministry of the Chilean government was involved. Three international drilling uh, rig teams were involved. Engineers and technicians from NASA here in the United States were also involved. And of course, more than a dozen multinational corporations. But here's why I shared with you this story, and this is key. Because as dramatic as the Copiapo mine rescue was, it cannot be, in my opinion, regarded as the largest or the most difficult or the most critical search and rescue effort in human history. Why? Because I believe that the title of that belongs to another. One whose arrival into our world marked the inception of God's divine plan to rescue not just 33 individuals, but to rescue countless generations of humanity from the destructive power of sin. We are only four weeks away from Christmas. Right now, the question many people are getting asked is, are you ready? And when they say, are you ready? They're asking, have you bought all the gifts you're supposed to buy? And of course, there's some people that will say, well, I haven't started. Some people have already started. Some people have already done, right? But, but I want us to focus this, this morning on the incarnate. Well, I want to focus on specifically Christ, who I believe is indeed the reason for the season. The word incarnate, or the more commonly recognized word incarnation, has a history, I believe, of being correctly applied, or incorrectly applied, excuse me, because it is often confused with another word, reincarnation. Have you heard that word before? The word reincarnation basically ascribes to the idea that a person's soul, after they die, can be reborn in another human being or another non-human body. But here's the thing, friends, there is no biblical basis for that kind of thinking. And, and, and because... Because there's no biblical background to suggest that, that, that a person, when they die, they are reborn in another form or in another entity. Because the Bible teaches us that everyone is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, we must be careful to make sure that we don't embrace this idea of, of reincarnation. Because again, it's not biblically based. But when you look at the word incarnate, it is a term that refers to the act of one who is spiritual who takes on physical form as a human being, and it is a term that is used specifically to reference God becoming flesh, assuming a human nature to become a man, and this is critical, without ceasing to be God. Spirit taking on humanity, but without losing its divinity. And only one person in history, in history can claim to be incarnate, and that's Jesus Christ. Bible tells us that his arrival, his work, on the cross was foretold many centuries before and for whom there is indisputable evidence that he is everything that he said he was. That as he was fully man, he was also fully God. In Luke chapter 19 verse 10, one of the scenarios that we see this concept play out, the scripture tells us that Jesus faced criticism from the religious establishment. Why? Because he chose to hang out with a tax collector. Oh my gosh. Jesus hung out with sinners. Why would he do such a thing? If he truly was from God, he would know not to hang out with sinners. At least that was their thinking. But Jesus responded to their criticism by summing up the reason why he came. He didn't just come to hang out on the world. He didn't just come to check out the planet just to see what it's like. He didn't, want to, he didn't just simply come to have to experience what it means to be human. Jesus came for this reason. In verse 10, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want us to say it together this morning. One, two, three. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Say it again. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When you allow those words to sink into your spirit, 
I believe that there are three unmistakable truths that come to the fore. Number one, that from God's perspective, being lost means that humanity, because of sin, is in an unfavorable and an unsustainable, undesirable state. And for another to come and save humanity, number two, it must mean that we are helpless on our own to turn a desperate situation around. And then finally, because there is no human on the earth save God revealed in the person of His Son, Jesus, that is qualified to be our Savior and Redeemer, then Jesus represents the Savior we needed. This is also why I believe that Isaiah, in the scripture we're about to read, paints for us this picture of God's effort, attempt, in sending His Son Christ into the world. Did you know that Isaiah, when he preached, or when he when prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, did so approximately 700 years before Jesus was born? 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah was already talking about the Messiah. Of course, it's not because he knew it on his own or he, he discerned it on his own or he was looking at the stars and he was trying to read the stars. No, God revealed it to Isaiah that he was going to send his son to achieve what the world could never achieve on our own. Let me give you a little bit of uh, history into Isaiah's life. Number one, Isaiah, we discovered, was a prophet during the reign of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and of course Hezekiah. And because Isaiah was deeply knowledgeable about, about people, about culture, about, about faith, he became a political and religious counselor for the nation, gaining easy access to the kings and always speaking to them and challenging them to embrace God's will. Isaiah was known for, for working to reform a lot of the moral wrongs and the societal wrongs and political wrongs that were taking place in his time. He was not afraid to reprimand kings for their deliberate act, lack of concern. He was not afraid to rebuke astrologers for false teachings. He was not afraid to call out the rich and the influential for not using the responsibility of their position to help others. And he was always encouraging the masses to be obedient to God rather than be indifferent toward his covenant with them. But in the end, as we all know the story of the Israel's, of the Israelites' history with God, because they would not leave uh, that life of rebellion, that life of sin, God promised that He would bring judgment on them and that the season of judgment would bring decades-long uh, 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 period of, of, of distress, of, of gloom, of darkness. But here's the good news, friends. God promised that He would not leave them in that season. That there will come a time where He would come back and He would restore them and He would ultimately bring salvation to not just Judea, not just Israel, but He would bring salvation to the world and He would do it through one man. And He promised, and, and, and we see this promise in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 1 through verse 7. So if you follow with me along as I read, and again I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible Translation. Verse 1 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the marching warrior in the roar of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, 
and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Isaiah makes this point that just as the people of Israel, the people of Judah, found themselves in a place of gloom and doom and distress because of their refusal to uh, listen to God's warnings to turn from rebellion and to turn back to Him in repentance, that God would bring indeed punishment that they could not resolve on their own, but that God promised that He would not leave them in that state, but that He would Himself come and restore them back to their right place. And in doing so, we see Isaiah for us today making this point that in Christ we find one who has altered humanity's course and condition. Friends, without Jesus, we would be lost. Without Jesus, we would be hopeless. Without Jesus, we would be defenseless against the power of sin. But Jesus, when he came, he changed everything. And that's why I believe that in this Christmas season that we are to celebrate Christ as the Savior that we need. That every time we, we, we think about all of the the joy and the pomp and the circumstance that comes along with, with Christmas that we do so recognizing that it is Christ that makes this season possible because he is the reason for the season. And so what I want to do in these next few minutes is just simply answer the question as we begin this brand new series, why is Christ the Savior we need? And the, the, the response I'm going to give you is not my opinion, it's not what I think, but I believe it is what the Word of God teaches us. The first reason I believe that Christ is the Savior you and I needed is this, that his birth or his advent into our world gave us hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. Again, notice in verse 1 and 2, Isaiah is encouraging the people because they are confronted with the reality of coming judgment because of their rebellion against God. And he informs them that their gloom and distress will not last forever. It's not because God will at some point feel sorry for punishing them. Or that at some point God is going to overlook their sin. No, God is saying that, that, that the season of gloom and doom and distress will not remain. Why? Because light will dawn. I will give you joy in the place of judgment because of one man. Because of my son. What does this mean? That the coming of the promised Messiah, the Savior we needed, is so that he might give you and I hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. Romans chapter 3 tells us that we are all born under the power of sin. That is our mind, our heart, our will. All of it is controlled by sin. And that, we, and that measured against God's perfect righteousness, none of us is sinless. But in truth, all of us are guilty before God. Jesus said it, that if we break one, we've broken all the commandments. So we can't say, God, well, I've only broken a few. I've not really broken most. Or God, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. The Bible says that because we've broken one and we have all broken at least one, we've broken all of them. And the scripture says that we are guilty before God. Were it possible that you and I could resolve our guilt on our own? Maybe we might have stood a chance. But because no amount of good you and I can do can ever take away the guilt of the wrong we have done, as far as God is concerned, outside of Him, we are without hope. And for the people of Israel, God's judgment had to have felt like He was washing His hands off clean of them. 
how many times God had forgiven, how many times God had restored. And they were going through this constant cycle of walking with God and then rebelling against God and God bringing judgment and then God relenting and, and then restoring them. And then they would have to go through a period of, of walking with the Lord and then they would be distracted again by the things of this word. And it became this, this endless cycle. And you have to imagine, at least from a human perspective, that there's a point where God is tired. That God just says, no, enough. How many times am I going to forgive you? How many times am I going to keep restoring you? You don't seem to get it enough. And yet the Bible tells us that God chooses to not wash his hands of us, even though we, he has every right to. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he desires for us to know him. And God does not leave us in a hopeless situation, but he comes in and he steps into our world and he changes our situation around. Jesus came to bring hope to an otherwise hopeless situation. And he would address that by dealing with sin, not our way, but his way when he gave his life on the cross. When we celebrate Christ's birth, we are celebrating what he came to do in this world. We don't just simply celebrate uh, 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 his inception or his, or, or his coming into our world. We celebrate the reason why he came and that to bring hope to a hopeless situation. I want you to hear what 1 Peter chapter three, verse, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 3 to 5, how, how, how Peter describes it in, that, in those verses. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, catch this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The living hope that we have is because of what Jesus did on the cross. And without Christ on the cross, we would have no hope. Peter goes on to say that, that having received this blessed hope, this living hope through Christ's resurrection from the dead, we're able to obtain an inheritance. Catch this. He says it is imperishable. He says it is undefiled. He says it will not fade away. These are not things that the world, that, 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 that what the world offers us can, can, can claim. Because the things that the world offers us will perish. The things that the world offers us are impure or imperfect. The things that the world offers us will fade away, but the inheritance we gain through knowing Jesus, the Bible says, is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it will not fade away, and is reserved in heaven for us, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The Bible tells us that the hope that you and I have, because we put our faith and trust in Christ, is a secure hope. We never have to wonder or worry, God, will you back up your word in my life? God, will you fulfill your promise in my life? No, God will do what he says he will do. God is the rock on which we stand. He is the pillar that we lean on. He is that shelter in the stormy times. When we find ourselves hopeless, we are reminded we are not helpless. Why? Because we have Jesus. And no matter what you may be going through today, realize that if, if God can send his son to deal with the greatest problem that you had no, you had no power to resolve, then what is it that you're going through that he cannot resolve? You, have, you always have hope, no matter how hopeless that situation may be. But not only does Christ's birth give us hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. Number two, Christ's birth has expanded humanity's access to a personal relationship with God. Christ's birth gives us the opportunity to know God like we've never known him before. In verse 3, Isaiah describes God's plan to expand his kingdom mandate. What? Of leading people out of spiritual darkness beyond territorial boundaries. This is important. Why? Because for many of the Jews back in those days and even to this day, the Messiah was one who was for the most part regarded as a liberator of the Jews. In their minds, the Messiah came for them. 
And so Isaiah, 700 years before Christ stepped on the earth, was already prophesying that the Messiah in coming would not only come to deliver Israel, he would come to deliver the world. And unfortunately, many lose sight of the fact that God's mission is not just for some, but it is for all. And that it is not a political mission, that the Messiah's mission is spiritual. In sending Christ to the earth, God would fulfill his promise when he, that he made to Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember what happened then? When the serpent deceived Eve and she ate of the forbidden fruit and then she gave it to her husband and he ate. And the Bible says their eyes were open and God essentially said, guys, what have you done? I told you that if you eat of this tree, you will die. What have you done? And God did not leave them again in that condition. God promised them that he would restore. And that by promising that the offspring of Eve would do what? Would crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. But I want you to hear what Ephesians 2 verse 13 to 15 says. Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were, and he's talking to us. He says, you who were previously far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not by our effort, not by our heritage, not by our, our, our accomplishments, but by the blood of Christ. Why? Because he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He made both groups into one. And he has broken down the barrier of the divided wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances so that in him or himself he might make the two one new person in this way establishing peace. Bible tells us that sin is that great divider. It is a great separator. It separates us from God. It separates us from one another. But when God made a covenant with Abraham that through his descendants he might bless the nations of the earth, God was referring to the finished work of Christ on the cross, whose death and resurrection would forever abolish enmity between the sinner and God and give us opportunity to know him. This is why Christ can say that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He made a way. He became our access to the Father. So that as John 1.12 says, that those who believe in his name, he gives them the right to become children of God. You're a child of God not because, again, of your heritage. You're not a child of God because of your background or because of what you've done for God. You're a child of God because you put your hope and faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You believe in his name. And I am grateful, friends, that we have a Savior that, we, that has given us access to our Father. That we don't have to earn God's approval. That we don't have to work for God's acceptance. But we can embrace the reality that because of what Christ did on the cross, we have access to our Father. And here's the last point. Christ's birth has not only given us hope in an otherwise hopeless situation, not only has he given us access to the Father, but Christ's birth has forever ended humanity's incapacity to repel sin and its oppressive rule in our lives. In verse 4, Isaiah drives home the point of Christ's coming. He recalls one of the greatest periods in the history of Israel, described in Judges chapter 7. The Bible tells us in Judges chapter 7, and I would encourage you to go home and read this when you have a chance, for several years, the Israelites endured constant harassment by the neighboring Midianites. The Midianites would invade without warning. They would trample their crops. They would kill their animals. Basically left the Israelites with no way to sustain themselves. And unfortunately, there was no one in all of Israel that was courageous enough to step up and to lead the people to stand up to the oppressors. But God had his eyes on an unlikely man, a man named Gideon, who himself regarded, felt like he was the least qualified to do anything for God but God chose Gideon 
And under Gideon's leadership, Israel would defeat a massive Midianite army with 300 soldiers. Vastly outnumbered by the enemy, and yet they were able to overcome the enemy so that not only would, would, would the story of what they had done be passed down from generation to generation, but more importantly, that generations would learn that freedom only comes when it is God that is at work to free and to save. That we do not gain freedom, lasting freedom, by our own effort or our own work. That freedom comes from allowing God to save us. So Isaiah the prophet reminds the people of Israel that just as God has brought an unlikely victory against a greater opponent, so also the Messiah's coming will, as he says, shatter the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of the oppressors. I want you to hear what Romans chapter 6 says. Apostle Paul alludes to the end of sin's rule in our lives when we come to faith in Christ, when we identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Here's what he says in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Why? Because death no longer has mastery over him. For the death that he died, he died the same once for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too. I love those words. In my Bible, I underlined it. You too. He says, we, we as well must consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is teaching that when we identify with Christ, here's what happens. Our old nature died when Christ died on the cross. We've been given a new nature that conforms to and is devoted to Christ. And that just as death ceases to rule over Christ when he rose back to life on the third day, so also death no longer has mastery over you and I. That is, we don't have to fear the penalty of death anymore. When the scripture says the wages of sin is death, that we don't have to fear death anymore. Why? Because, because Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And because he paid for our sins on the cross, sin no longer exerts control over our minds or our hearts and our will. Why? Because now we belong to Jesus and we operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised him from the dead now lives in us. So when you understand that Christ is the Messiah, friends, Christmas, I believe, takes on a whole different meaning. Because it's more than just simply celebrating the birth of our Savior. It's realizing that when he came, he came to be the Savior that we needed. He came to address issues that we could not resolve on our own. He came to solve a problem that we were helpless to solve. And by the grace of God, next Sunday, we're going to explore the question, why Christ came as a man? Because I believe it's important for us to, to, to recognize what, why God sent his son to take on humanity and how that makes a difference in our world today. I want to invite everyone to buy his with me this morning as we pray. And as, as I close out today's message, I want to ask if there's anyone here today who will admit that maybe up until now you've never considered the implications of Christ coming and why it was quite literally the greatest thing to happen to us. I'll tell you this, that as I was preparing this message, my prayer has been, Lord, help every listener to comprehend the purity of your character. Help every listener to comprehend the scope of your patience and to comprehend the depth of your love in sending your son Jesus so that we might make a firm commitment to you today. But I would ask this morning, if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, understand this morning that God has always been merciful to you. And even now, he's, revealing, he's showing mercy to you. Why? Because he's revealing truth to you so that you might have an opportunity to embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord. 
God desires to reveal himself to us every single day. God desires to speak into our lives every single day. God's desire is to help us to become like his son, Jesus, to conform to his image. And I was gonna, I'm just going to very quickly ask you, there's anyone that is here that will say, Pastor John, it is my intent. It is my intent to surrender my heart to Christ, to conform to his image, to become like Christ, to walk in forgiveness of sins and newness of life. Then know that it will be my, my pleasure, my privilege to pray with you this morning. So with every head bowed and every eyes closed, Bible makes it clear to us that again, all of us have sinned and falling short of God's glorious standard and because of that, the consequence, the only consequence that we deserve is death, separation from Him. But I'm grateful to tell you this morning that, that God didn't leave us in our condition. He loved us so much that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God's desire is for you to have abundant life, friend. To have life abundant, and we're not talking about we're not talking about things, we're not talking about material, we're talking about knowing that in your heart that you are right with God, knowing that you are a child of God, knowing that you are reconciled with God, and you're able to experience all of the measure of walking with God. But it has to it has to be predicated on your decision to follow Christ today. Will you accept the truth about your sin? That 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 it is your sin that, that causes a rift between you and God. Will you be willing to confess that sin before God and say, God, I'm not gonna make excuses for it? Not gonna justify it, not gonna not gonna blame others for it. I'm simply going to confess it today. And then you seek forgiveness, knowing that Christ made the way for you to be forgiven when he gave his life on the cross. And then having done so that you're able to live through the power of the Holy Spirit today and every single day until the Lord calls you home. If that's you this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer. Just a, a prayer of faith. More than just repeating words, this is you declaring to God, I want to be yours. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. I want Christmas to mean so much more than just another holiday where gifts are exchanged and food is eaten and we hang out with friends. But I want to, I want to be able to celebrate the depth of your love for me and sending your son Christ to give his life on the cross. I want to encourage everyone here to pray, pray with us, to encourage those who are praying, making a commitment of faith to, to Christ today. Let's pray together. Everybody pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you today. For the opportunity you are giving me to make things right with you. I come to you right now because I need your forgiveness. I come to you right now because I need your mercy. I believe today that Jesus died on the cross and that he died for my sins. And that through his death, the penalty of my sin has been paid. And so God, I come to you today knowing that because I put my trust in Jesus, that I am forgiven, that I am saved, that I am changed, and that I will live a new life in Christ. I commit my life to you today, God, and I ask you to live in me, and I ask you to live through me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me to live a life that is pleasing to you. Help me to live a life that brings glory to you. And thank you for the change that you will bring about in my life. God, may others see it and may others be drawn to you because of it. God, thank you for making me yours once again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.